Welcome to Real Talk Intervention, episode number 16. Stephanie and I are very excited today. We're, we're going to be delving into the English language art standards with a couple of the people who were actually involved in the process of writing the English teaks this year experts. Yes, we're going to be speaking with Amanda Brewer, a middle school ELA teacher, and she is also a person who works with student teachers. So student teachers come into her classroom as she mentors them on their journeys towards becoming educators. And then Dr. Carol Ravel, and she is a curriculum expert for college, and she works with student teachers. And what's really exciting about these two guests that we have today is that they were both part of the TEKS standard writing committees that the state holds whenever they revamp their standards. And the ELA standards had a huge revamp this year, and they were a part of the group of people who wrote the standards. And we're really excited to to talk to them today. One brief word of of warning, we did these uh, interviews over Skype, so the audio quality may not be up to... I don't know if I want to say our normal high standards, but our our normal standards, they might be a little worse. So bear with us. Uh, The the conversation that we're going to have is definitely worth it, especially if you're an ELA person. You are going to want to hear this. I think understanding the purposes behind those standards are really going to help facilitate some of those conversations that we're having at the beginning of the year next year of why we're doing what we're doing. And I think it's going to helpfully give you a preview of what you're going to be looking at when you get the ELA standards when they come down. Um, We are going to have everything linked as well on our blog, so you can look at documents to go through kind of what we're talking about and see them at the same time. So today's episode is a long one, but it is a good one. Uh, If you are interested in teaching ELA at the high school level or really at any level, we talk about the vertical alignment of the standards as well, you are going to love what we've got to talk about today. Hi, Amanda. Hi. Thank you so much for being here today. We're so excited to get your perspective on on the English standards. Thank you for having me. How did you end up being a part of this committee? I have no idea. (laughs) 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 Um, My curriculum coordinator, like they put out a call, must have been two years ago. I don't know, a long time ago now. They put out a call asking for like people to recommend for people to be put on the on the committee and my curriculum coordinator and my instructional support teacher recommended me and had me complete the application and put my resume in and then my state board rep just got to pick one per grade level strand and I I don't know how they do that I don't know what they look at I have a I mean I have a master's I've been teaching for a while I've, I don't know how they got me it was wonderful well tell us a little bit about about the process of of writing the standards what surprised you about the process I started teaching the year that the old new standards rolled out and I sort of heard whiffs of how tense that was and how much revision there had been and how people felt like it had really been taken out of teachers hands and put into the board's hands so I went into the initial meeting with a great deal of trepidation I I felt very nervous um, just not knowing how that was going to work but I was honestly I was very impressed with how TEA handled it they they knew that there was this sense in the room and they addressed it hmm. and the first thing they did was show us the proposal from the professional organizations and how they how they proposed that we structure things and 
when we had been accepted onto the committee, they told us that it was a revision, a streamlining. And so people went in thinking we were just going to like knock out a couple of things. But on the very first day, we chunked the whole original structure. Really? It was weird. <laughs> but you no, know, but they, I mean, like TEA proposed it. Like they said, you know, this is the structure that, or this, this is the organization of standards that has been proposed by the professional organization. We would like to take a vote now on if you would like to use that. And everybody's wow. like, oh my God, I can't believe we're voting on this already. <laughs> <laughs> wow. But it was good because it really felt like it was a fresh start. They were addressing the, you know, the, the giant elephant in the room, but it led to a lot of challenges as we went forward because there was, you know, like when you give your students too much freedom, mm-hmm. we almost had too much freedom. And so that made things kind of difficult, I think. How are you feeling about the, the way the standards came out? I am mostly satisfied with the way things look. I like the move away from the genre. I love that we have the response strand in there. I love that comprehension is in there. My hill that I almost died on um, got in, which made me very happy. And it was examining sources for credibility and bias and for faulty reasoning. Ah, good okay. one. Yeah. I've been looking at the Common Core and the Teaks, and one of the big things that I found that I really liked the Teaks over the Common Core, one of the differences I noticed was the um, was our research strand for the Teaks. Yeah. I think that we do a really good job here in Texas of not focusing on the product of research, but really the process of research. So, so I love the fact that you guys were defending that, mm-hmm. keeping that inquiry open, keeping it about synthesizing ideas from multiple sources. I love it. I know the middle school teaks better. I'm looking at the high school teaks now, the ones that we have now. But I really like that we moved away from not just like mandating exactly how kids do it, but you know, it's develop and revise the plan and modify the research question and locate sources. And then we're not telling them exactly how we do it. Like, these are the steps involved, but research is changing. It's just, it's not like it was when I was in high school. How do the standards guide pedagogy? The eighth grade standard that I was so glad to get gone was students will examine the differences between lyric and epic poetry. And it's like, if you can't tell different just by looking at them, like one is a book and one is like (laughs) 10 lines. Like, I don't know why we're doing this. So things like that, when we get so specific, like what I was talking about before with the research stuff, like one of the ones that we have now is like martial evidence by, you know, combining sources. Like when we get so into the nitty gritty and we're making more like this is how you are teaching rather than this is what we want kids to be able to do. I think that that really drains the life out of it. These standards do a much better job knowledge and skills. It's not, you know, this is what the child needs to like physically do. These are the the knowledge and skills you need to have. But then the idea of this is what you're actually expected to do in the classroom. But, But it's not what we're expected to do like with a, like I'm supposed to actually watch this kid do it with the specific text that I gave them. Like they're supposed to be able to do it with whatever I do. What, with whatever they have. right? And I think that some of what we got into before was it was becoming obvious that you were going to be doing these things with this specific type of text. And that's that's not how real readers read. Like, that's not what we do. And so I think it got too nitty gritty. And I think we, got, we were able to take a, a little bit of a step back while still having all sorts of good things in there with how we can make good readers and writers to go out into the world and be critical citizens. I hear a lot of objections when it, when it comes to standards because people feel like it's going to be drill and kill 
we, we're focusing only on what they're doing, not why they're doing it. And I think it's really great to know that the people that are in these rooms writing these standards have that big goal in their mind. What do real, authentic readers and writers do? What are the skills they have to do to be able to enjoy a text like To Kill a Mockingbird or to enjoy Shakespeare. So it's leaving that open for the teacher to be able to find the ways that they can apply that in ways that speak to those students that she has in front of her, mm-hmm. while also emphasizing we need every kid to be able to do this. Mm-hmm. Standards are very controversial. One of the things that's controversial about them is the, the pedagogy piece that we discussed. The other thing that is controversial is kind of about the, the outcome of these of these standards. And of course, uh, it's an unfortunate reality in, in the world that we live in is when we're thinking about these standards, we are... I mean, at least from a science perspective, from my perspective, when you're thinking about the standards, you're thinking about them with the test in mind, from the star test in mind, or prior to the star, the tax test in mind. How much did you take into consideration the star test when you were writing these standards? That was another thing that I was pretty impressed with TEA about. In the middle school room, I was the only current teacher. Everybody else was in curriculum. Mm. And I don't know that that was true for the other grade level. I don't think that that was true for the other grade level rooms. It just kind of worked out that that's the way it was. And so anyway, we were, we kept coming back to, well, what does that look like when it's tested? And our like uh, facilitator from TEA, she kept saying the test adapts to you. Wow. And that's really cool. I mean, that was because sometimes we did get wrapped into, well, what does that look like when we do test that? You know, don't, she kept saying, you don't have to think about that. Um, You get to make the decisions you want to make. You were in the middle, and I'm very interested in how did the vertical progression get developed? Did you work together with the elementary, intermediate, and secondary, and then the college readiness to get that all? How does that work? I have no idea how that works. It was messy. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we did change the overarching structure. We did go back and use the original standards and decide if those were still a good fit and where they would fit in our new structure. But then the grade level groups sent representatives like to you know both sides four or five would come to us and would talk and like where do you, we don't know that we can do this one can you move this up and we're yes we can move this up high school would come down it's like we think that this goes with y'all okay maybe it does and so there were just lots of conversations uh it was in the middle was harder than I thought than I guess I realized it would have been we did have to like make the bridge and how developmentally ready are our sixth through eighth graders to really do some of the things that we need them to be able to do to get ready for high school. And some of those things we did have to push up a little bit, but then you don't want to overwhelm freshmen either. So there were a lot of concerns. Um, That was difficult. I'm not completely satisfied with the vertical alignment, but it is what it is. I think that's the hardest piece. Like, do you want to start with where we want them to be when they go into the college and, and career readiness standards? And do we go backwards from that? Or do we start with what kids can do and move them as far up as we can go? I wouldn't even know where to begin if I was starting in the middle and having to work both ways. Yeah. What most groups did was we looked at the CCRS and kind of worked our way backward. So high school was a big drive there. The college and career readiness standards. You kind of started there, yeah. and and that that was like that's the question I was going to ask. What always confuses me, what I think is the the, cru- the critical issue that makes 
everything about public education so difficult is what is the end in mind? What are exactly are we trying to do? Because if you have a student whose goal is to get into Princeton, and then you have another student whose goal is just to get that high school diploma so they can go work with their dad, you've just got two totally different ends in mind. So I just always wonder when you're when you're writing curriculum, what end are we are we looking at? Star is a is a basic skills assessment. This is not it's showing like, are you are you capable at this level? That's sort of what our teaks are. Our teaks are, um, you know, this is the minimum. Mm-hmm. And teachers, we know that teachers and students go above and beyond these in classrooms every single day. Got it. We know that they do that. If a kid were only to get these things, this would be sufficient. This is what we are saying is sufficient. We have so many standards and so many ends in mind. As a teacher, and I, I like that you said that you see the standards as the basic minimum. That's the way I view it, too. I, I see every student in my class needs to get at least to this level. Students can get beyond that level, and that's fantastic. But this is kind of right. like our basic minimum. How do you, as a teacher, kind of balance bringing all of these standards in? You've got your your, your regular TEKS. You've got your college career readiness. You, you know, you've got your ESOL standards. How do you balance all of that? <laughs> Is there a balance? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know that there is. <laughs> I find the thing, the like the big picture ideas, I go, like with those knowledge and skills statements, and then I try and get as many of the SEs as I can. And then we work with the ELPS, and I don't, I, I'm moving to high school this year, so I'll be working a little more with the CCRS. I, I don't know that there is a balance, and I don't know, like, even though we say that these are basics, like, I don't know that you can ever guarantee that every kid is going out with all of those things. There are going to be some things that they have in greater depth. That was another thing TEA was really good about. You know, if you put these in here, like, we are respons- you are responsible for all of this, for kids doing all of these things, and it, it does look like a lot. Yeah. But so, like, in ELA, and I think this is where ELA is just different from other content areas, like... I was listening to one of the state board meetings and one of the, one of the guys said, okay, so there are six strands here. So you're going to do strand one in the first six weeks, strand two in the next six weeks. And everybody in the, you know, we were like, oh my God, no. No. Oh my God, no. introduce you to the word recursive. Yeah, you're not going to do collaboration for six weeks. Like, it's not, they just work like that. So the way this strands, the way these strands are, I mean, I'm thinking you're going to have like one one or more from each um, strand each day or maybe not authors, purpose and craft, but um, that might be, take a little bit more um, specificity, but there are a lot of things that you're going to combo and you're going to link together as I'm lesson planning. Like I'm paying attention to all of these things and making sure that that comes out. When I first started working on our district's curriculum team, our curriculum coordinator told us to make the rainbow with thing that we were doing. So we had all the strands on different colors and everything that we were doing, we were trying to make a rainbow for every, for every unit I love that. Well, that's a wonderful way of thinking about it. I love that. That's very English. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. 
Amanda, I, I have one kind of final question I'm going to throw out to you. This is the question that is kind of we are considering this month with uh, with what we do and thinking about these assessments and, and writing standards towards assessments. And actually, there's a lot of assessments that our students have to take. And some of them you know, arguably are as important, if not more important than the STAR, things like the SAT and the ACT and, and these AP classes. Do you think that the standards should consider these sorts of college entrance exams? like the SAT and ACT. I have real reservations about that because those are for-profit tests. That's and, that's, what I said. and so, you know, like my head is going, absolutely not, that's crap. Yeah. <laughs> like, we, I mean, I care more about students being literate citizens out in the world. I don't, if, if they're not going to read another piece of fiction, like my husband has never read another piece of fiction since he graduated high school, so be it. But he has the skills that he needs to be able to, you know, interact with people and to read what's what's kind of between the lines that a lot of my students right, you know, and they're seventh graders, so that's different. But a lot of my students right now can't do, like, they can read something on paper and not see why it's funny. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So I think that's what I care more about, is that our students leave high school critical thinkers, and they're capable writers, and they're able to take in content and understand things. And yes, I love books, and I think that fiction is wonderful, and all of these things, but if that's not every kid. That's not every adult. And that's not fair. Yeah. Um, so I care more that they go out and that they feel confident and they're able to take risks in, with literacy and with language. That's more what I care about than the SAT and the ACT. Thank you so much, Amanda. Great. Thank you so much. That was fun. Carolyn Bell. She is someone that I met through the North Star Writers Project, the National Writing Project of Texas. And she is an amazing resource when it comes to writing and education pedagogy. I'm I'm really excited to have her with us today. Welcome to Real Talk Intervention. Oh, yes. Uh, thank, <laughs> thank you. Thank you, yes. And, uh, <laughs> so, Dr. Ravel, would you like to tell us a little bit about your background? I have three years of middle school teaching experience, and I have nine years of high school teaching experience, teaching everything from remedial reading up into GT English, and just about everything in between. I also have seven years of teaching at the college level, and and that would be in the education department. And reading methods, um, ELA methods, I have taught um, content literacy, how to work with English language learners. And I've done that for undergraduate and graduate level students. I have a doctorate in curriculum and instruction, the specialization in reading, and then I also have a master's degree in secondary education. My first degree is in English, so I am actually an English, a, a true English teacher with an English degree. So when people criticize the people who write the standards and they make comments like, these are people who don't even know the, the, the content or people who don't know students, clearly that is definitely not applying to you at all. You've got experience at every level. That's fantastic. Do you feel like the other members on your committee had, had similar sorts of levels of experience? Yes, and they filled in some of the places where I didn't have as much. And there were just people who were, I mean, the whole group, they all, I think almost everybody had a graduate degree if not you know most of them did and the folks that were sent in were specialists in their schools there's there's no doubt that their principals highly recommended them because they were the most effective teachers and all of them wanted to know what the research said and so several times when we just 
hit a conflict and we weren't sure which way to go, we started pulling up research and seeing what researchers were saying. And we tried very hard to stick to what we know are the best practices for teaching students to be successful without, and this is one thing that you, you should know, is that we cannot include pedagogy in the standards. Setting up standards that would lend themselves to good pedagogy. Dr. Ravelli, we're going to get into very much in detail your um, opinion piece that you post that you posted in the Dallas Morning News, a link to which mm-hmm. we will provide in our in our show notes and on our blog. I, I do highly suggest if you're interested in the kind of nuts and bolts of how the standards get written or how the sausage gets made, I highly recommend you check out Dr. Ravel's article there. She is going to talk a little bit about that with us. You, you're talking about a, a, a wonderful group of experts that are coming together and they are creating the standards. They, they know the students. They know teaching. We've got people at all these different levels and this is definitely flying in the face of a lot of the criticism that I have heard which is that you know it's politicians who are making these standards but you're describing here a a committee of, of people that I think we could trust but in your article you tell us that this is not the way it all worked out that the opinion of experts maybe wasn't what was actually used in the end. They have a group of experts for each of the content areas and they're called an expert committee and that's a different group than the teacher writing committee. So the standards get rewritten every 10 years. And when it's time, teachers send in applications. Each board member gets to choose one. They get to choose, well, they choose one for high school, one for middle school, one for for intermediate, and normally one for primary. At least that's how it was for English language arts. Then separately, they put together as a board a group of about five or six people that they considered the expert committee. So you went through this vetting process? to get to that part? Right. Okay. Several things happened with the English language art standards. One thing that was unusual was before even the experts did anything to the document, there was one teacher association group, Texas Council of Teachers of English and Language Arts. That's a long name. (laughs) (laughs) So um, TCTLA, they actually, they paid for a study out of A&M to actually see how teachers were using the TEKS. And there were, of course, huge issues with um, with how they were being used and, and the frustrations that teachers were having. I mean, you see the TEKS, they're, they're very wordy, they're hard to understand, there's multiple teaching standards within a single standard, and then there's that whole figure 19 thing going on. Right. And they did their survey, they found that there were some English language arts teachers who didn't even know figure 19 existed. What? Yeah. <laughs> Which was and, also kind of scary. And maybe you can give us a brief little history of figure 19. Not all of our listeners are ELA teachers, not all of them are high school. Last time the standards were written, not quite 10 years, we're not at the 10 year mark yet, the political piece was much more abrasive than it is this time. There were deep divides between the teaching right, teacher writing teams, the um, professionals in the field, the leaders of the organizations, and the organizations being the professional organizations, and the board members themselves. And then there were a couple of individuals on the side who wanted to participate without any of the above and just write the standards. It was a very, it's a very long convoluted story, but let's just say the night before it was time to vote, there was literally documents shoved under hotel room doors of a new document that needed to be, that they wanted. And then they went through that day when they were adopting it and pulled out all the comprehension strands because they didn't think that they were rigorous. Um, I think that they were called gobbledygook by one of the board members. And um, they were removed. And then they passed the standards without them. 
But from what I understand and what I've heard from other people who were there, the testing branch of TEA came in and essentially told the board, well, you just eliminated the test. There's yeah. nothing. Yeah. <laughs> Most of the test comes out of this area. And they created figure 19 to take care of that. So that's where figure 19 came from. But it also tells you how bad the, um, this system can go if it's not very carefully monitored and how the politics get in the way because, you know, in this whole mess, people were, you know, seeking power and seeking opportunity for themselves and their ideas. And there wasn't a lot of talk about what this meant to students and what this meant to teachers who needed to teach the standards. So I think that TCTELA's effort to go out and get the research on how the standards were being used was really important so that the board could see that teachers were really struggling with the standards as they were. The other thing that happened is that TCTLA with, I think there were eight or nine other organizations got together and they put together a framework that they thought would be a very good framework for the new standards. And, you know, it wasn't just their thinking. They brought in a lot of research. The leadership of most of these organizations are people out of the university who actually do know literacy research. And so they sat down together and they determined that there were these eight common characteristics and good standards, and they created these eight strands. And then it was given to us, the writing team, as a possibility when we started. The, the criticisms that I think you were leveling at the standards writing process in your in your Dallas Morning News piece, you know, you mentioned that the pedagogy is not a part of the standard, and you mentioned a lot of some of the, the good, successful pedagogy mm -hmm. that we know, such as Writer's Workshop, Inquiry, Self-Selected Reading, and you were saying that with the, the standards, the way they came out, you know, when they went through the political sausage machine, how, how do you imagine the ELA standards really supporting that kind of student-centered learning environment that we want to see? Okay, so we clearly have some problems in some schools where we have principals who use the standards almost as a way of dictating pedagogy in the classroom. And we've seen this happen, and I've, I've had friends who have struggled with this, to, I mean, to the point that they've lost their jobs mm -hmm. over this struggle. They want their children to self-select their reading and then have, you know, time to do that reading in class. And there are principals who think that's not a good use of time, even though we have mountains of research that says it is. Right now, the way the standards are written, because of the changes made by the expert committee after the writing committee wrote them, it is kind of been pulled up into a knowledge and skills statement, so it's no longer a student expectation, SE. We are very much afraid that it will not get seen up in the knowledge and skills statement. And so independent reading for a sustained period of time is probably one of the most important standards that we wrote. Right. <laughs> and it's now hard to find. Hmm. And it may get lost in the shuffle. Um, that's one of the things that we're fighting for right now is trying to get that cleaned up so that it's back down in a student expectation. And principals know that that's good practice and an expectation of the state. We, we want the teachers to be able to say, well, it's in the standards like this. Well, that, that makes a lot of sense. You know, when I, when I was reading your article, I, I have to say I'm a science person, so a lot of this stuff is, is confusing because we look at our content differently. So I have a hard time right. understanding how a standard can 
modify the way that you teach. I, I feel like from my perspective, a standard is there and you can teach that standard in any way that you want to teach it. I, you are definitely connecting in your article that the language of the standard and, and, and the way that standard is presented is almost inevitably going to affect the way the standard is taught in the classroom. And, and I really am having a hard time understanding that. Do you think it's just because of the way administrators are viewing it? There are lots of amazing schools out there who have amazing practices, but there are some schools who are, you know, really focused on test prepping. Mm -hmm. um, so some of the language was written in an intentional way to combat that. Yeah. Um, the self-selected reading would be one of those. Mm -hmm. um, another thing that um, we're looking at now that um, we're trying to, you know, maybe pull back to what we had before, is that each of these standards, we have clearly streamlined them down. Yeah. We started pulling them apart so that they weren't all mushed in together. And then because we had the different strands, we were able to like connect back and forth. So if we're reading fairy tales, we could write fairy tales in our composition mm -hmm. strand. Right. One of the things that we did in the multi-genre strand was that we had analyze and apply. And so those two verbs required that you look at this, you, you look at whatever genre you're looking at. It could even be, you know, informational text. We identify what's what's in this text, what makes it this makes it actually informational. We analyze it. Mm -hmm. But then when we're done, because it says and apply, we're going over to composition now. Right. And we're going to write. Right. And so that's going to definitely change the way sure. we're teaching. Sure. It's a signpost saying, hey, now the, there's composition to work on. So we want you to not only analyze this, but we want you to show, with the students to show that they learn this. So even though it's not pedagogy, it's actually content. It's this is what the students need to learn, mm. and this is what they need to learn to do. Let's see. And so you have them paired right next to each other. Okay. I could tell by the article that you were shocked that these changes were being made in these closed-door meetings by these unspecified actors overriding the recommended standards that you had put into place. What exactly was changed? I know you said the collaboration was taken out. You, you said in your article, the crafting of writing that's built on high-quality models has been replaced with traditional writing modes without the flexibility found in authentic print and media texts. How does writing that standard in a different way keep the teachers from using high quality models? And then what do you think the impact's going to be on learning outcomes for students? Most of the teachers in the state of Texas are high quality teachers. I, when I talk about there being issues, I'm not talking about the majority of teachers. Most teachers are doing a phenomenal job. And even when in my earlier years, I didn't do a phenomenal job, I sure did the best I could with what I knew how to do. Essentially, when we're talking about authentic texts in the genres, particularly, you know, we're reading current events, we're reading um, modern pieces, not just, you know, the canon. There is a lack of wording to that speaks to diversity in this new iteration, and it's a hot and uncomfortable topic. There are a couple people on the board who are quite resistant to um, language that includes diversity or multiculturalism. And they want to make sure that the words British and American literature are prevalent. So the authenticity issue, if my classroom are language learners, they might want to see themselves in the things that they read. If I'm pulling from American and British literature, it's possible that I would have less choices of authentic pieces that would be 
significant or important to them. I have seen that. I'm I'm on a lot of ELA teacher groups. There are these these huge discussions about the the literature that we're choosing who chooses the literature is to create a coherent like almost like all students are going to have the same story regardless of where they went to school or is it about finding those those mirrors for kids and, and not just giving them you know this is the same thing I had when I was in English class way back in the day you know we had British lit and we had American lit and it's kind of like that's been the standard for so long, I see a lot of people kind of resisting the idea that that can change. My first degree is in English. I yeah. clearly love it. There are pieces. I have debated before with other English teachers. I believe every student should read To Kill a Mockingbird. I have friends who absolutely disagree with me. And I think we both can support our argument quite well. But there's, there is, it, you know, I think I could give it up if I felt like it was impeding me reaching my students. I really want teachers to be able to use what they need to use to reach the students that are in front of them. And that they have those choices, the choices that y'all talk about having that other other places don't feel like they have. Um, I know that there's a, you know, there's always a desire that we've pushed hard against. And so far we've, we've been able to do this successfully, but there's always this desire out of the state to publish a list of books that students should read at certain grade levels. But we really push back against that because we know that some administrators would buy all those books and class sets and all of the students would have to read from those books. Right. And it wouldn't matter who was there and whether they were appropriate. We have to meet the students that we have where we have them. And we really tried to leave those kinds of openings when we wrote the document. And even on things like grammar, which ended up being mostly in the middle school where those listing pieces ended up happening, you know, we, we put a grammar skill at a certain grade level. Well, if the student's not making that, that mistake until an older grade level or if they have, you know, something that's even more significant that would make a bigger difference. You know, when I teach my undergraduates to work with students with their writing, I ask them the question, what single piece of grammar could you teach the student that would make the biggest difference? But if there is apostrophes on their, you know, teaks for that year, they're teaching that skill. And, and, you know, what's even more frustrating is half the class may already know it. And so oh. you're teaching students who don't need it. And then you're not teaching what the students really need or what would make the biggest difference. Um, we have to be more efficient in the way we teach. And um, we need to, you know, try to move our students the furthest with what we see they're struggling with. And when you start labeling out every little thing, Thing for the sake of differentiation between grade levels, you're kind of creating a differentiation, but it's not really realistic for how students really learn how to write. Right, because we we know, especially if you've worked with at-risk kids in intervention or in ESL, just because the teak is not there doesn't mean that you don't have to teach it in your class. <laughs> so one of the things that we were talking about uh, when we were discussing the standards and kind of like where the standards come from and, and, and going from that, the alignment of our standards, our TEKS, to things like Common Core and then to college college readiness tests such as the SAT, the ACT. Uh, neither Stephanie or I had ever thought, you know, what is the SAT aligned to? How do your TEKS align to Common Core or how do you know how they would align to SAT, ACT, college readiness exams like those? 
Um, but we were specifically told to not consult Common Core. It's never bothered me that the state of Texas resisted the Common Core. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of those times that Texas was unique in itself and um, said we can have our own standards and we won't be told what to do, which, right. you know, the state of Texas did that a whole lot with the previous administration. Right. But in this case, I, I think they were right. Truly, it was written by um, people outside of education. And, and sometimes you need people outside of education to look at things in your content because you need to know where it's going and, you know, what, what it looks like in the real world, and that's helpful. But in this case, you know, there was never really any real teacher contribution to it. I think more than anything, our testing system follows it. But our document does not follow Common Core. And every once in a while, I'll see somebody write something that says, oh, it's Common Core, it's Common Core. And I promise you, we are miles ahead of Common Core. We did have the College and Career Readiness um, document that comes out of the state of Texas. It's a very well-received document. In general, the state of Texas and um, the people who participated in that process, it was a very inclusive process that included people from across the state. We, as a, as a writing team, really tried to use that as a model for how we wrote the individual standards. Hmm. So you can kind of see if there was an influence, I think that that would be the influence of the cleanness that we're in the college and career readiness standards is what we were really trying to achieve in our standards, something that can be mastered and can be accomplished instead of all these little pieces where you, oh, I got half of that. I can't do this other half until next week. And, you know, which is kind of how I always felt about the other standards is that I was always kind of like, I mean, when I highlighted, because I'd highlight each year, there'd be standards that like half it was highlighted the other half wouldn't be yeah (laughs) it's almost it's almost impossible to get through all the teaks in a year i mean it it really is And if you've seen the new ones, there's far fewer of them. Because we were able to take them apart, we were able to reduce the number of them. So the number is way down. I think it's going to be much better. So college and career readiness, we worked backwards from there in the high school team. Well, we're linking those standards on our podcast as well as part of our blog. Because I do want them to see what, what was released as the like the beginning blueprint of what you guys have put together. It is going to be so much more user-friendly for the teachers. We could have worked on it forever. <laughs> but um, at some point, you have to say, okay, we're done with this and, and pass it on. But um, anyway, we... We really, we tried to listen very carefully to the people. And we, and truly, if you sent in comments on the, um, when, when they had it posted for public review, we responded to every single one of them. We read every single one of them out to the table and responded to all of them by either making a change or by not making a change and explaining it. We tried to really incorporate the feedback we got from everybody. Do you feel that the English standards should conform to college readiness tests like the SAT or ACT? First of all, SAT, ACT, those are not good predictors of college success. We, we have lots of data to support that. They're limited in scope, and you're kind of putting the cart before the horse. Um, I believe in learning for the sake of learning and that um, we want our students to be the best readers and writers possible that may not necessarily align to the reading uh, to the SAT or the ACT. I, I just, I don't, I don't ever want to put a test and as a standard for what makes a good set of standards. Thank you so much. I was fascinated listening to you talk. I love it. I feel like I could talk to you forever. Like we could just, this is the new show is you come on. 
and are we you talk replacing about me, Sarah? This. Yeah, Stephanie, you're out. It's Aww. over now. <laughs> Real talk intervention with Dr. Ravel. No one else, just her. <laughs> Thank you for giving us your time today. This week, we had two really great conversations about standards with two very different professionals. Right off the bat, I have to say, if I were trying to think about you know, what a committee of people who should be writing educational standards should look like and who should be comprising them, these are some really great examples of the people that I think should be chosen for that. Amanda is a current middle school teacher. She's on the ground in the trenches right now working, but she's also a teacher mentor and a trainer for student teachers. So she has not only the big picture when it comes to how teachers teach, she's really good at being able to isolate what is actually happening in our classrooms today. Dr. Ravel is basically what I think most of us would imagine if we're thinking about an education expert. She's got the experience across all the levels. I mean, she's taught teachers. She's, she's got the research base. She's got access to the actual research itself, not just the, the blurbs that we're getting when someone reports that research to us. I think that when people are arguing about whether or not the standards come from teachers or not, I am glad to know that the standards are coming from people that I trust and know have the best interests of our students in mind. Yeah, agreed. So, Stephanie, let's kind of summarize some takeaways that we had from these conversations and sort of discuss them a little bit. I think one big takeaway that we cannot ignore is the intersection that we're seeing between politics and education. Amanda mentioned that they had a framework handed to them that had been written by a professional organization that they were voting on the very first day they were in committee. Dr. Ravel told us an interesting story about some backdoor sort of late night deals that led to the creation of figure 19 after uh, the division of student assessment got a hold of the of the standards. I mean, Stephanie, what was like, was there any lightning bolt moment that really just struck you from this sort of peak that we had? I think one of the things that I was shocked by was that there was so much power and so much um, trust given to the teachers. When Amanda said that she was handed this framework that had been created for them and they on the first day went ahead and said, nah, we're not going to. Yeah, this isn't going to work for us. That was interesting. And I really, I was interested by the fact that they used what we already have, kind of some of those standards that they've already laid out. And they, they really thought about that sequencing and the and what was going to be done at each level. So those are the two things that I thought were the most interesting when we talked to Amanda. You know, and Amanda and Dr. Ravel seem to have kind of different opinions on how much kind of behind the scenes happens to their sausage. You know, Amanda seemed a lot more... <laughs> more like comfortable with the product that came out and Dr. Ravel seemed a little bit more like that the politicians had gotten into it so maybe that's a little bit of a what your perspective is playing into that I don't know I think that that is really a huge concern on the minds of a lot of teachers is how much of the work that the teachers are actually doing like you said these people that we actually trust how much of their work is arriving to us unfettered our, our two guests had slightly different impressions of that but I really do want to talk about the the, the story that Dr. Ravel said about the figure 19 situation and how they rewrote they wrote all these wonderful standards and then the assessment division came in and was like you removed the test huge shift in perspective from where Amanda is saying TA said no the test is going to adapt to you I really want to speak to that because this was a lightning bolt moment for me Stephanie you and I have discussed on this podcast and in other forums
forums as well, that we did not really become advocates for standardized testing until the move from the tax system to the star system. And I feel like this, these, these stories, the figure 19 story and Amanda's story of the test adapting to the standards really shows a change in culture and a change in philosophy that happened in the state that I see reflected in the tax to star system. When she said that they had all their comprehension teaks, I believe Dr. Ravel said that they called them gobbledygook, perhaps. I don't know that I'd go that far. <laughs> but the star moved from comprehension, the tax was comprehension, yeah. from comprehension to analysis. And right. I feel like this story it illuminates the truth of that. They tried to move the comprehension teaks out because they knew this was not the best way to teach English. They knew this was not the best way to assess. They had the broken tax system. So they shove the comprehension teaks back in. But guess what? We don't have to worry about them now because STAR has moved beyond that comprehension. It has moved to analysis. And our new test makers are willing to adapt to what we need our standards to be. You can't have analysis without the comprehension. So both of those pieces of have to be there. I think that what has happened with the STAR is that the emphasis has moved, whereas the emphasis on the tax was completely comprehension. When you do that, if you take the comprehension teaks out of secondary, that's going to be a big deal for mm -hmm. that test because, yes, the test is now gone. So we still have those comprehension pieces, but at this level, at secondary level, although that is the basis, that's not necessarily what we're always going to be going for standards-wise. And now we're moving to that next level. The only way to make a test fair is you've got to move beyond just basic comprehension and into analysis because it's only through letting students analyze a piece of text that's right in front of them where they can use the tools that they have and everybody has more or less the same tools. This is how we move away from, you know, questions like along the lines of, you know, what is the Christian symbolism in Lord of the Flies? I mean, that is just a, a patently unfair question where students have got all these different kinds of tools. We've got to move to a level where students are an analyzing using the tools that are on the page to even get to any sort of fair assessment. I'm surprised at how much of a controversial statement what you just said is because yeah. there are a lot of people that feel like moving to a skills-based English class is wrong because what we want to do is study literature. Like that's our content, right? So your content is molecular biology. My content is supposed to be literature. And that is a deeply ingrained belief system. Even with Dr. Ravel, she mentioned every student should should read To Kill a Mockingbird, right? Right. So, I mean, that's kind of that love unit. That's kind of that value judgment that most English teachers have. So when you talk about we want to be able to have kids who can cold read anything. And this is coming down to the same conversation we keep having, which is what's controversial about the standards and what's controversial about education is what is the end. And this transitions us to our other takeaway, our, our next takeaway, which is not completely moving away from the politics. But we had a lot of conversation about the fact that because we do have so many different ends in mind with our students, we end up having all these different standards coming out, like college and career, ESL, Common Core, and they all are kind of going in these different directions of what we think is important for our students. It's hard. So I, I heard Dr. Ravel talk about some of the Common Core and TEKS comparisons. She doesn't actually like the Common Core. She didn't like the Common Core because she felt that it was the teacher input was not there. It was written it by wasn't. stakeholders who were not there. 
the information that's put out looks like it's been highly, highly researched. It looks like a lot of thought has been put into this. I do see that the Common Core does have more discrete skills listed. It, it might not do as good of a job as, as what the TEKS do now, which is kind of integrating and showing how those those work those skills work together. They use different terminology. They put more emphasis on argumentative uh, writing. We put more emphasis on research writing. But I, I don't think that other than that, they are that far off from one another. And I, I think that they are well supported by research. I'm going to go ahead and put a link on our blog that talks about some of those common core pieces. Texas has a, a history of looking at the federal government and saying that we don't want to do that, whatever that might be. And, and the fact that there is a federal pool of money that is offered to states who use innovation and education. And that's one of the other reasons why we didn't adopt Common Core was because we wanted to get access to that money. So we get money because we're not doing Common Core. Well, because we're going to be innovating. Got it. So interesting. Cool. It, that's interesting, right? Yeah. So, and then you've also got officials saying that we, the states already spent this money, and we've already spent a lot of time developing our own standards. So, I have I have no problem with Texas having its own standards and Common Core, but I, I I would love to actually see us all kind of recognizing the similarities between what we're doing and finding these common grounds and finding these alignments, so that we can have a common language for what a, a student's going to do when they get out of any school. And that's to me is such is is that big piece of the equity you know I mean if you look at Texas we're we're not doing very well when you look at other states when it comes to educational outcomes yeah yeah (sighs) and I I, yeah and I do have a problem with us not following common core I mean it's such a it's such an issue for our military servicemen and our our people who are moving multiple places across the country at multiple times I mean and you know it's affecting a lot of our most successful people when when you have different states having different course sequences and different information needed at different grade levels I mean it is a huge disadvantage for our, our our families who are having to move many times and I think that there is maybe still this idea make maybe this 1950s idea that a person you know moves to their home and they go to their school district and they move through their school district but I don't know how real that is for our students nowadays military people are moving all the time my own uh, in my own family I have uh, some cousins who are extremely high-performing students they went to Ivy League colleges but they so they're you know they worked hard they had a lot of parental support and even they will tell you how difficult it was to constantly move from state to state and change their education each time sometimes they had to go to remedial classes sometimes they had to you know take extra things to get themselves caught up I mean it's just a huge it it is a huge problem but I mean the problem is we have all these different ends in mind it would be nice if we across the nation could agree on what the point of high school is what the that the goal of it is stop trying to make it be everything to everyone but I do think that's just I don't know we're gonna have an answer to that I I asked both of our guests the the question that you and I grappled with in, in episode 15 which is you know in high school we have this really complicated relationship between the standards that are required for our high school diploma and then the standards that are being tested on college entrance exams. So I I asked both of our guests, do you think that our standards should be geared toward or with an eye toward or paying attention to the SAT, the ACT college entrance exams? 
both of our guests voted definitely against aligning the standards to these exams. They they made it clear that was their personal opinion, but they both um, they both at least they basically said the same things. Um, Amanda did point out that this conversation is complicated because of the for profit nature of the exams, which totally agree with that. I think that's a big problem with this. But you know, they both said that literacy is their goal. They want their students to be good readers, and they are not having they are never have the performance of a student on on a test as their goal that they don't care about that but you know stephanie as they were saying that i mean i couldn't help but think do you think your students agree with that do you do you think your students don't care about their performance on that test is that the attitude that you think they want you to have because i educational reality that we live in they want to do well on those tests whether or not whether or not we get all esoteric about whether or not the test is right or if it's for profit i understand all of those things and the the fact is kids need to have skills to be able to pass standardized tests they are in every single facet of what we are asking them to do. We tell them, we want you to be college ready. We tell them to be successful, you need to go to college and you need to have the skills and you've got to go to technical schools. And then we tell them, you have to take these tests to be able to do these things. And then we say, but the tests don't matter. Now we don't care how you do on them. And we don't care how you do on them. <laughs> I mean, I think, I think, I don't, <laughs> I think I don't that underpinning, it. I mean, I think that underpinning what they're saying is this idea that if you have a well-trained student who is truly literate and who right. is truly able to read and write on a high college level, then they're going to naturally do well on these sorts of standardized tests. So it, I think well, if we focus English. on the... That's on the person, English. you know, yeah. it, then it'll work out. People pay thousands and thousands of dollars to prepare for these college entrance exams. So while I like the idea, and I think there's, I think there's a general truth in the idea that if the exam is well written, perhaps just being a, a well-rounded student, it, it's going to naturally align with a well-written exam. This is relying on the tests to be well written, you know, and we have absolutely no power on whether or not those tests are well written. We can't control that at all. And I think there also is sort of an idea, you know, like I think about it, if I were to take a fifth grade level reading test, it doesn't matter how well written that fifth grade level reading test is, I'm going to pass it because I am reading at, you know, a 14th grade level. Is that a grade level to read at? I don't know. I- I'm reading at a college yeah, level, think, right? Yeah. So, so I'm not going to have any problems. There's a huge discrepancy between the reading level that I'm at and the reading level of the test I'm taking. Our students do not have that huge discrepancy between the reading level that they're at and the level that's required of them on the SAT or the math level that they're at and the math level that's required of them for the SAT. So it's not like, oh, you're just really good at math. You're going to do really well at this math test because the discrepancy between where they are and where they're needing to be is not that large. So they have to be really well prepared for that particular task. And so while I, you know, I philosophically have a problem with 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 saying that these for-profit organizations should be our educational goal. I don't like that. But then there's the reality of this is what the situation is. And I, I guess maybe I'm just not, you know, uh, an ideological rebel. <laughs> and then there maybe there needs to be more ideological rebellion. But I have a hard time when we're talking about lives on the at stake there is a lot of merit in what Dr. Ravel said about how there is research to show that, that 
the SAT and the ACT might not be the predictors of college success that that they're purported to be, and a lot of that is a lot of good salesmanship on that and the end. And that's true. I don't think the score is predictive. We've looked at the star scores, right? Uh, we just went through this last week where we compared uh, Lexile scores to star scores, right? And no, yeah, there's there's some correlation, but I mean, there was like one score point. I think I, I think I looked at it was a thirty three sixty four on a scale of thirty seven seventy five being a passing score. Okay, so a score got thirty three sixty four, and the four kids in the tested group that we looked at got scores of Lexiles that ranged from I'm not lying. 560 all the way up to 1200, which is a range, if you don't know about Lexiles, that's a range of about second or third grade to college ready. Yeah. So, I mean, there there is an argument to say, are these tests actually predicting college success? Not necessarily. But then again, you know, there's a lot of research that says being valedictorian of your school does that predict any success? Not really, no. I appreciated her saying that, but to me it was beside the point. We're not trying to predict college success. It may not predict college success. You know what it does predict? Whether or not you're going to get into the college. Absolutely. And that's totally. what we're talking about here. It's not whether or not they're going to be successful, but are you even going to get a chance to try? This is the educational reality we live in. Yeah. So, I, I, Stephanie, thank you so much for setting us up with these educational experts. This was a fascinating peek into this world for both of us and for me in particular. I just love talking to you English people and, and learning about your world because it makes me think about my world in a different way. So I know like right off the bat, I can tell you the idea of the difference between the knowledge and skills and the student expectation. I'm going to take that back to my own standards right now and think about that a little bit because I thought that was a great distinction that I've never thought of and I've never heard before. So thank you for that, uh, bringing them on. You are welcome. And I, I want to make sure that everybody will keep an eye out on the blog. I know that a lot of people subscribe to us on iTunes, but check us out on the blog because I'm going to put some information in there to some links that will talk about more of what we're doing. I'd like for everybody to be able to see the latest version of the new teaks that are going to be coming out for ELA. And then I've got several studies and pieces of comparison between Common Core and the teaks that I would like for you to see. And then there's some research base for the Common Core, the report that they put out. I think understanding the commonalities between what we're doing for all the different standards, for all the different tests, for all the different goals that we have for high school. I think the way to solve this is looking at the common ground and figuring out what our must-haves are going to be. What are our non-negotiables that we want every kid to be able to do when they leave high school? So if you're not an English person, I hope that you found something to take out of this as I did. Um, but don't despair, science people. We are going to look <laughs> at the science standards next week. We're going to have a great conversation uh, between us and an AP science teacher so we can kind of talk about the controversy see the streamlining of the standards what kind of science is required for students to, to get out of high school what, what should we be asking them to do anyway and this is going to be a great conversation you're not going to want to miss that's going to come out on June 20th as Stephanie mentioned we do have a blog we are realtalkintervention.blogspot.com you can follow us on there you can also follow us on iTunes and Stitcher one thing I would really appreciate people doing is if you listen to our podcast and you love it do you please give us a review a rating and review 
review on iTunes. That really helps other people find Real Talk Intervention and it helps grow our community. You can follow us on Facebook, Real Talk Intervention, and we are tweeting at intervene number four real. We hope we get some great feedback from this episode. If you've got thoughts, please send them in to us. You can write us realtalkintervention at gmail.com and we will see you next week. Thank you.